Bank customers across the country are increasingly being hit by a surprise. Their bank accounts are being closed without warning, causing chaos in their personal finances. What's behind this new trend in capitalist banking? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron today. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolff, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. There's a few things we want to talk about today, Richard, and they're all related to the banks. There's news stories about the banks getting rid of risk or hedging risk or creating new derivatives to sell risk, meaning they all feel they're at risk. But of course, the people who are most at risk are those who don't own banks, but perhaps have their meager life savings in banks. Here's a story from the New York Times, why banks are suddenly closing down customer accounts. Surprised individuals and small business owners can't pay rent or make payroll, and no one ever explains what they, quote, did wrong. Here's a little bit from the story, Richard. The reasons vary, but the scene that plays out is almost always the same. Bank customers get a letter in the mail saying their institution is closing all of their checking and savings accounts. Their debit and credit cards are shuttered, too. The explanation, if there is one, usually lacks any useful detail. Or maybe the customers don't see the letter or never get one at all. Instead, they discover that their accounts no longer work while they're at the grocery store, a rental car counter, or at an ATM. When they call their bank frantic, representatives show concern at first. Oh, so sorry. No, we'll do whatever we can to fix this. But then comes the telltale pause and shift in tone, quote, per your account agreement, that's the thing that nobody ever reads, the fine print, we can close your account for any reason at any time, close quote, the script often goes. These situations are what banks refer to as exiting or de-risking. That's the de-risking again, Richard. Anyway, what's going on? Well, you know, there's a micro level and a macro level answer to your question. The micro level is the following. 
Banks, like all capitalist enterprises, are first and foremost about profit, profitability, maximizing the difference between the money coming in and the costs, money going out. And in a society of stress and difficulty, like the one we're living in or living through, there's always a temptation by all kinds of enterprises and individuals to offset the difficulties the economy is experiencing as they impact these individuals and these companies to find their profits or to protect their profits by crossing the line from legal into semi-legal into illegal activities where you can make a profit uh, that would be harder to get if you played by the rules. And in the United States, as anyone who pays attention knows, this is always a problem. It is part of how capitalism has always worked. The profit incentive that we're supposed to believe is what leads businesses to become more efficient or to develop interesting new commodities, and profit incentives do that. But that same profit incentive also induces people to uh, behave badly socially because it's profitable to substitute a bad ingredient into a food product because it's cheaper and you can make more money instead of uh, a good ingredient. To build a building with shoddy cement because you can get it cheaper than paying for the proper cement. And there's always companies willing to offer you cheaper cement because they haven't put into it what they know would strengthen it and on and on and on. The newspapers are full every day of examples of businesses with the bad luck of having gotten caught doing this sort of thing. So all you're seeing is that the banks are no different from everybody else. They are now being bothered in many ways by things that threaten their profits, and they're responding. So let me give you an example. The government, because of the amount of criminal activity, is constantly losing tax revenues from people who hide their money and so they don't have to pay taxes on whatever it is they get the money from. How do you hide money? You move it through the banks. You go from one bank to another. You play games with different kinds of accounts. And so the banks are brought into the process. There's really no escape. But then the government issues rules. You must report to us when there's anything shady. If there's a, a withdrawal of more than $10,000, you've got to let us know. You've got to fill out a form. Well, the bank doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to lose the customers who it's ratting out this way. It doesn't want to spend money on the clerical personnel who have to fill out these forms and stay on top of them and write quarterly reports to the government. All of these things mean that at a certain point, the bank concludes this account is either too shady or too small 
or too much trouble for us to want to keep because it's not profitable. And often that means not profitable enough. So it's actually still profitable, but they can do better with different kinds of accounts. And they have therefore written into the fine print, as you quite correctly said, the ability to simply dump a customer they are not having to worry about and they're not responsible for all of the negative consequences. A business can go out of business because it can't meet its payroll, because it can't write checks against its cash, because the bank has frozen the account. An individual loses out on all kinds of opportunities. Uh, the New York Times and other media coverage gives examples. Students who get bounced out of college because they defaulted on their college loan repayment payments or they defaulted on paying tuition costs because their checks bounced or their credit card wouldn't go through, etc. In other words, the banks have given them a way out to protect their profits. They do that. They protect their own profits. But from a social point of view, the chaos they cause in countless individuals and businesses that go belly up or have all kinds of difficulties, well, the banks are not responsible for that, so nobody counts it. And that becomes irrational because what you're going to be doing is solving a relatively small problem. Even the banks admit it isn't a major expense, but they don't care. This is the profitable thing to do. So they dump these accounts, and we who are looking at it from the outside realize that the banks are taking care of themselves at the expense of those people whose accounts they close, with the social costs that go with those closed accounts being often much larger than the private profits saved by the bank. And that's an irrationality of capitalism. It means decisions are being made, in this case, by banks to shut down accounts that are good for them, but bad for society. Good for them, saving them, let's say, $50,000, but causing distress in the larger economy and difficulties that, if you measure them, amount to millions of dollars. That shouldn't happen, but it happens literally every day. And by the way, the New York Times is kind of late in this. There have been stories on and off for years, and earlier this year, in the summer, quite a bunch of them about this phenomena, which is nationwide. Richard, I want to get your assessment or estimate of where where we are. The language that's used in the financial pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, which is, you know, because it's oriented towards Wall Street, the language is language that people don't know. They don't understand it. And they can't understand it unless unless you're in this world, you can't understand these words or unless you do like specialized research. Here's a another issue about risk. It's big banks cook up new ways to unload risk. This is another element of the de-risking. It's not about the personal accounts of working class people who suddenly find when they go to the grocery store that their account has actually been closed. Here's the headlines. Banks are selling risk to hedge funds, private equity firms through so-called synthetic risk transfers. Now, hey, everybody, you, nobody knows what these words mean. 
right? Unless you're in this world. Selling risk to hedge funds. Well, what does that mean? Or to private equity firms. What are they? And how are they selling them? Through synthetic risk transfers. Now, this is not language that normal people use in normal day conversation. I want to read a little bit to you and then get your assessment here. U.S. banks have found a new way to unload risk as they scramble to adapt to tighter regulations. That's one element. And rising interest rates. That's a second element. So there's two different reasons why they're trying to create new ways to unload risk. J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, U.S. Bank, and other U.S. banks are selling complex debt instruments to private fund managers as a way to reduce regulatory capital charges. Again, these are words that nobody will understand what they mean. On the loans they make, people familiar with the transaction said, these so-called synthetic risk transfers are expensive for banks, but less costly than taking the full capital charges on underlying assets. They are lucrative for the investors who can typically get returns of around 15% or more. And here's the kicker. U.S. banks mostly stayed out of the market until this autumn, which means this is actually a breaking story, when they issued a record quantity as a way to ease their mounting regulatory burdens. Now, the mounting regulatory burdens, Richard, have to do with the federal government and its regulators and perhaps the Federal Reserve as well, requiring America's biggest banks to have more capital in reserve. And that is a consequence, as you and I have talked about, and I know you have written and talked about it a great deal, of collapse of pretty big banks earlier in the year as a consequence of the Federal Reserve's decision to hike interest rates and also to keep them high. And I'll finish with this. The Federal Reserve's regulatory chief outlined steps to strengthen the financial cushions for larger banks. This was a couple months ago, which he said would help boost the resilience of the system after a spate of midsize bank failures this year. And then finally, quote, events over the past few months have only reinforced the need for humility, aha, humility and skepticism, all right, and for an approach that makes banks resilient to both familiar and unanticipated risks. These are all euphemistic language. Unanticipated risks, Richard, that's just like when the economy collapses. Again, those were the words of Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair for supervision. Anyway, let's keep going with this. First thing, everyone needs to remember 2008 and 2009. What really collapsed then was a very similar kind of pyramid scheme, which is what we're talking about here. It goes like this. Banks, insurance companies, any entity that accumulates a lot of money finds itself in the world of finance. It used to be just banks, but now there's all kinds of private capital accounts and all kinds of things. It doesn't matter the, the names of them. And they invest in financial 
instruments. I'll give you a simple idea, a bond. The bond could be issued by the government. The bond could be issued by a private corporation. And bond is just another word for loan. The government borrows money and prints out a bond. It used to be on a piece of paper. Now it's done electronically. And you, the lender, could be, you know, John Smith, lends money to the U.S. government and gets in return a bond, which is a promise of the government to repay the loan, let's say in two years or 20 years, doesn't matter, and to pay interest every year between now and then. Okay, all straightforward and simple. Here's the problem. Between now and the time that the bond is redeemed by the government, they pay back, John, who lent the money in the first place, might want to sell that bond because he may need money. So for him, as he holds the bond, it's always a question, do I need money more than have the interest come in on this bond? And when John needs the money, for example, he needs an operation and, or he wants to buy a house or his kid is finally going to college or whatever it might be, he's going to sell the bond to get the money to pay the bill. The problem is the value of the bonds go up and down. When interest rates go up, the price of the bond goes down and vice versa. In other words, anybody, and we're talking trillions of dollars in bonds in the world issued by governments and corporations, at any time, all the holders of these instruments are worried, here we go now, about the risk, the risk that they will need to sell that bond before it comes due and that the bond might then be worth a good bit less because interest rates have gone up. Aha, over the last year and a half, interest rates have gone up a lot, which means the prices of bonds have gone down. And the risk that you now have to sell a bond means you now might have to sell something worth a lot less than what you paid for it. Many banks in the United States have been put into a very difficult situation. Those earlier this year that collapsed, especially the Silicon Valley Bank, but also the First Republic Bank here in, the, in New York and California, these were banks largely wiped out because they were stuck with bonds. They had to convert back into money, often to take care of their depositors who wanted money back. This was a terrible risk, and those banks went belly up. This scared the pants off all the other banks. They wanted some, here we go now, way to lessen their risk. So here's what they did, and it's exactly like what they did back in 2006, 7, and 8, although then there was slightly different instruments and a slightly different circumstance, but the story is basically the same. Here's what they do. They buy an insurance policy. It's really what it is. An insurance policy that says, in the event that the risk you're worried about, in my example here, rising interest rates that plunge down the prices of bonds, if that's the risk you're worried about, buy an insurance policy that gives you X dollars for every increase in the interest rate above 2% or above 3%. You can write any kind of 
insurance policy you want, just like you can in most other insurance markets. And so the banks will now offer to buy an insurance policy. They offer to sign a contract with someone which says, I will give you so many dollars right now if you promise that in the event that interest rates go up, the risk becomes real and I get hurt on the bond I'm owning, the hurt I will suffer will be reduced because you as the insurer are going to have to give me X dollars. And who is on the other side of that contract? Who are the insurers? Here comes now the joke. Other banks. Why? Because for them, this is free money. They don't have to do anything because they're only promising to pay if something happens in the future. If that thing never happens, well, then they've gotten paid a premium and they don't have any insurance to cover. It's the same swindle, uh, excuse me, arrangement that the insurer of your house or your car. You pay a premium every year, and if nothing happens to your car, you get in return for your premium nothing. If nothing happens to your house, you get from the insurance company nothing. You give them money. So this is now a way for banks to help each other by bailing each other out since they are insuring the risk. But instead of explaining this, because it isn't all that complicated, they come up with credit swaps, insured credit swaps, financial credit swaps. That was the language you had back in 2008 or nine. Now you have this synthetic risk transfer. You know, people have a laugh at a cocktail party coming up with these languages. The reason you need new words all the time is that the silly people in the Congress, the senators and Congress people, make regulations about uh, credit default swap, so you can't do what you used to be able to do, but they didn't write a regulation for a new thing, so you invent a new thing, and now you have this new thing to play the same old game, and it'll take a year or two or three before the Congress catches up, regulates this thing, and be sure, I'll tell you now, and you can come back and Thank me later. There'll be a new term three years from now, and we will be reading the same gobbledygook. But this is all about the fact that in the financial world, where you start betting on what's going to happen in the future, these bets create the need to insure in case you bet wrong. It's as if you went to the track and you bet on a horse and you knew damn well that you could lose your bet. But there was a guy standing next to you who promised to give you money if your horse lost. If only you'd give him $20 now, he'll give you $100 if your horse loses. Okay, now you've reduced the risk by spending money. And there's guys all over the place willing to sell you this. And then the problem arises, just in case anyone's wondering, the problem arises if your horse loses. And if a lot of people did what you did, then you're all going to go to the insurer and say, hey, give me my money, only to discover that the insurer isn't there anymore. He ran away. He understood he was now good for all this money that he would have to pay out, and he vanished. 
Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what happened in 2008 and 9. The people writing these insurance policy, including, by the way, the largest insurance company in the United States at that time, AIG Corporation, they didn't have the money with which to honor the insurance policy financial gimmicks they had written. Here's the important thing. Capitalism is a system that promotes this kind of risk-taking and this kind of insurance and this kind of spreading the risk. It always has for centuries, for at least the last three or four centuries, capitalism has done this over and over again, many times blowing the thing up after a few years into what we call a crash, a depression, a recession. And let me remind everyone, an American agency, the National Bureau of Economic Research, known everywhere as the NBER, keeps track of these crashes. Capitalism crashes on average every four to seven years. Much of the time, the crash is precipitated, is caused by a disintegration of the financial risk-taking insurance maneuvers of the sort we are now seeing, yep, yet again. Richard, as we move towards the end, I want to just sort of give a, a big picture, a bigger picture too for people and have you comment on it. As you're saying, the finance capital or bank capital, the banks, the bankers, they're a dominant or the dominant sector within the U.S., capitalist economy. You know, the the industrial goods producers, say Ford or GM, you know, those companies, they also go to the banks. They have to get credit from the banks. The banks know exactly what the financial condition of the companies is. They have an overview of everything as they're deciding where, quote, to take risk or to de-risk. And you have just a handful of banks now. It's really a handful. J.P. Morgan, $3.31 trillion, Bank of America, Citibank, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bancor, of course, Goldman Sachs, Truist, PNC. These are like the eight biggest banks. Now, what the average person, the 330 million people who live in the United States, when they put their money in the bank, they want to have some level of stability. They want to be able to draw on their money if there's a little bit of interest, they can make a little bit of money on their deposit. That's all they care about. They just want to make sure their money's there and it's safe. They're not interested in profit. They're not interested in making money from having money, you know, outside of like maybe minor interest. They're not dealing with, as JP Morgan is, $3.3 trillion in assets. If we took those eight companies, those eight banks, I mean, there used to be thousands of banks, but now they're like the handful of the biggest banks dominate, and you made those banks into public property. You created a bank. Instead of competing banks that are driven by profit for bankers, that would be the real way to de-risk the entire whole system. Instead of people showing up at the grocery store and finding out that the bank has, according to the fine print that no one reads, close their account 
It completely de-risks. It takes away the element of risk for average people. By average, I mean everyone, except the bankers. And yet, it's never discussed in these financial pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post or certainly the Wall Street Journal that that's even an option. But in fact, it is an option. Again, I want to get your, in our last two or three minutes, I want to get your take on that. No, I think it's an excellent point. It's this amazing ability of the United States to, like a child, you know, I, I love the image of the the little boy or girl, you know, three years old, going for a walk with their friends or their parents and encountering a scary dog who barks. And it frightens the little child. And so the little child, being a little child, puts its hands in front of its eyes, hoping and believing that if it can't see the scary dog, well, then the scary dog isn't there. And then, of course, as the child gets older, you presume and hope and normally the child will figure out, well, you put your hands in front of your eyes, you don't see the dog, but unfortunately the dog is there whether you see him or not. Well, if you don't grow up properly, you might actually believe as an adult that if you pretend it isn't there, it vanishes in some miraculous way. But you'd be wrong. And it's wrong in this case, too. The United States acts as if public banking, a bank system owned and operated by the government, therefore not driven by profit maximization, therefore not driven to treat their depositors and their the borrowers as though they were simply means to earn a profit, but people in the community to take care of, that this is normal in most countries around the world. The United States is odd. Huge parts of the banking sectors of European countries are public. They're not private. And in the past, more of them have been public. Even here in the United States, we have to remind people that in a very otherwise conservative state, namely North Dakota, the key bank in that state has been a publicly owned and operated bank of North Dakota that is owned and operated by the state, not by any private persons. And it's been the bank, the dominant bank in North Dakota for a century because no Republican and no Democratic governor or legislature has dared to do away with it. And a few that tried were handed political defeat overwhelmingly. You know why? Because the businesses and the individuals in the state of North Dakota, as I said, otherwise conservative, love that bank. They love the idea that they are dealing with a bank that's there to help them. They love the idea that it's not driven by profit maximization, that if the bank does earn a profit, it's returned to the state government as a revenue, thereby lowering the taxes North Dakota has to collect from its businesses and people to the amount of bank profit that is funded right back into the coffers of the state, you know, to fund the schools and hospitals and roads and all the other things that a state government does. What I just summarized in two minutes is part of the reality from which the American public 
by a collusion between the banks, who don't want you to know, the media, who ought to expose this but don't, and the government, which looks blandly on and dares not interfere with what is convenient for the banks and the mass media that they, in the end, control anyway. It's a wonderful view, if you like, into the way capitalism keeps itself going, not by what it tells us about its efficiency, by what it carefully molds in what we do and do not learn about. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.